0: As a church, we've been walking through the book of John this year, and after a brief break and several breaks from that break, we're uh, we're going to keep marching through John through most of this fall. Now, the book of John, if you haven't been with us, the book of John is just written so that you and I might believe, and that by believing, we might have life in the name of Christ. That that word belief um, in John 20 is a present tense verb. And so if you're here and you're feeling discouraged and you're feeling on the edge and you're not sure if you um, can continue to put one foot in front of the next, the um, Gospel of John is for you. If you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord, the Gospel of John is for you. If you're here this morning and you are just striving to be a faithful, faithful follower of Jesus, the Gospel of John is for you. And so we pick up, and where we saw last week in John 7 is um, that Jesus was talking to um, the, the various groups of uh, people who were opposed to him in, in John 7. And uh, in that chapter, what we saw is that Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Feast of Booths. The Feast of Booths was one of the three or four festivals that faithful uh, Jews would come up to Jerusalem for in the first century and celebrate. And they would basically go camping on their on their roofs or in their backyard or in the in the street to celebrate the fact that God had led the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt and led them through the uh, led them through the wilderness following a pillar of smoke and a pillar of fire and that he had brought them safely and fulfilled his promise to bring them to the promised land and so Jesus is now still in Jerusalem at the feast of booths and then this is where we pick up in John 8 verse 12 it says this Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I come from, where I came from, and where I am going. And, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says where I'm going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, and I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my, authority, on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is true. He has not left me alone, for I will always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Father in heaven, one more time we ask that your word would be true and clear to us and that we would see your son and that he would light up the way before us. We Thank you for all this in the name of your son and by your spirit. Amen. Sir, we would see Jesus. We would see Jesus. In just a few short chapters from now, this is what a group of people trying to get to meet Jesus will tell his disciples, will tell Philip and Andrew and Peter, sir, we would see Jesus. Maybe you're here this morning and you want to see Jesus. You want to know him. You want to understand him. You you want to understand what all the hype is. You want to understand what's going on with him. And maybe you're here this morning. You say, we, I want to see Jesus. Or maybe you're here this morning and, it has been a long time since you feel like you saw him and you call yourself a christian but the longer that you live the the more blurry and the more distant that he feels and this morning you're here and you're longing for a sight of jesus maybe you're here this morning and you're trying to walk faithfully and fruitfully as a christian you're you're trying to live as somebody who 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 is just trying to walk in the light. You're just trying to look for guidance as a Christian. And what all of us need this morning, no matter where we're at in our walk, is we need a sight of Jesus. We need this morning to see the risen Lord. We need to see Jesus. And in this passage, we're going to talk about what it means to see Jesus. First, we're going to see in this passage who Jesus is. And we're going to talk about why we can trust him we're going to talk about why some people don't see him, and then we're going to talk about how we can see him. Now, those of you um, who who are members here and regular attenders here, you know that um, I am not always the easiest person to take notes off of, and this morning is no different. <laughs> I figure if it ain't broke, uh, normally we. <laughs> We send the, uh, the bulletin out on Friday to, um, to get it ready for this morning. And sometimes, occasionally, most of the time, on Sunday morning, I'll think, oh yeah, I need to say that too. Um, so I, if you don't catch any of the rest of this sermon, um, there are, you could see in this passage that there are two seeming paradoxes which this chapter is built on two seeming paradoxes. I'm going to follow the outline I just gave you, but really, I'm following a different outline. (laughs) Really, there are two seeming paradoxes, and we'll get to them when we get there. But just so you know, that's working with two outlines here this morning. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for those of you who are married to me and like to take notes, and you're really good at it. (laughs) Who is Jesus in this passage? Who is Jesus in this passage? Well, first off, he is the light of the world. Jesus is the light of the world. Um, This is a theme that John has been building since the very first words of his gospel. Since the very beginning of John's gospel, we've seen these statements. In him was life, and the light was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. We see this in John 1. He says, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But to all who did receive him and who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of the blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We see this in John 3, and this is the judgment The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This passage is about light. Who is the light of the world and where can we have light? And Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And and whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. We'll have the light which gives life. We'll have the light which allows someone to become the children of God. This is Jesus declaring, I can give light. And as we have seen in our other readings this morning, Jesus is picking up on all this language from the Old Testament, from Isaiah 60 and Isaiah 42 and from Psalm 119. When Jesus says, I am the light of the world, that's not a contextless statement. He's using a symbol and a metaphor which has been used throughout Scripture to herald the coming of the Messiah, that after a period of great darkness, after a period of great despair and gloom, that light would pierce through the fog. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And of course, he says this statement in the Feast of Booths. He says this statement during the Feast of Booths, the time when Israel would gather together and they would celebrate the fact that God had led them through the wilderness during the season of the Exodus. That he had led them through the wilderness following a pillar of smoke and a pillar of fire. Jesus says, I am the light of the world while the Israelites are thinking about how they had been led through the light, led through the desert by a pillar of fire. While they're thinking back to the story of the Exodus and how Moses had this strange conversation with a bush that was burning yet not consumed. Make no mistake, when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, he is claiming divinity. Divinity. He is claiming that he will lead his people in the new Exodus just as the pillar of fire led the people of Israel through the wilderness, which is why on, in two different spots in this in this passage, he calls himself the I am. The I am, the same phrase that is used in the book of Exodus chapters 3 and 4 to describe Yahweh when Moses says, who will I tell them has sent me? And God says, tell them that I am has sent you. It's a name that, that means not only that, uh, that he, he existed, but that he continues to exist, that he's self-existent, that he has a saiyty. We see this in 24 where Jesus says, for unless you believe that I am. We see it again in verse 28, when you've lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am, that I am Yahweh, that I am the God who leads his people in the Exodus, who leads his people through the wilderness, who leads his people through the desert. When Jesus says, I am the light of the world, he is claiming to be the same pillar of fire that led Israel through the wilderness. And yet this pillar of fire, this, this I am, this God, is also the son of the father. You'll notice all the father-son language throughout this passage. My, my favorite is towards the end where Jesus says in verse 29, He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. For I always do the things that are pleasing to him you'll see that Jesus also calls himself the Son of Man. It's a phrase that's pulled from Daniel chapter 7, where we see this prophecy that in the end times that, that what the Ancient of Days will be sitting on the throne and one like the Son of Man will come and take his seat like, uh, beside him. And he will rule with him and establish an everlasting kingdom. This is who Jesus is in this passage. He's the light of the world who establishes the kingdom of God that will never be quenched, never go out, never fall, never be extinguished. He is the light of the world. And the Pharisees don't believe him. The Pharisees are so blinded so blinded that they cannot see him. And so we see in verses 13 through 20 that Jesus so patiently spends time trying to explain why you can trust him. And it's such a practical session, a section of scripture for us today in, a, in an age of disbelief. We see in verse 13 that the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Now, you can read the whole Old Testament Nowhere does it say that in the Old Testament. That, that law you are bearing, that someone cannot bear witness about themselves and be true is not found in the Old Testament. Instead, it's found in man-made traditions outside of the Old Testament. So the Pharisees have a man-made tradition outside of the Bible that they, that they hold as a measurement of truth. And they use that measurement of truth that's man-made to judge who God is. Now, you, you notice that that is still the same strategy that disbelief uses today. That people will m- have an arbitrary principle and because Jesus doesn't live up to that principle they choose to not believe in him. My favorite goes like this. Well, I don't see Jesus here so he can't be God. Well, where, why would it be true that if Jesus doesn't, is, if he's not readily available to you right now at this very instant, that he couldn't be God? Why would that be true? There's no law of nature. There's no, nowhere written in Scripture that that can't be true. The Pharisees are saying you can't bear witness about yourself because you're so your testimony can't be true about yourself. And that's not in Scripture. And if you think about it, if God is who he says he is, if Jesus is who he's claiming to be in this passage, if Jesus really is the light of the world, the, the one who shines and provides life and regeneration by very shining, who else is going to bear witness about him? It's a, they're, they're trying to fit Jesus into a box. They're trying to do what Jesus says later, later down in verse 15, you judge according to the flesh. How else is God going to reveal himself to us if he doesn't bear witness about himself? So Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. Jesus said, I know where I came from. I know my father. I know the one who sent me. I know the one who commissioned me. I know the one who uh, sent me down here. And I know that I'm going back to him. That as the son of man, I'm going to sit at his right hand and I'm going to reign and establish the kingdom that will never fade. I know those things are true. He says, but you don't. So whose witness is more trustworthy? Theirs or his? why he says you judge according to the flesh i I judge no one yet even if i do judge my judgment is true for it is not i alone who judge but i and the father who sent me notice that jesus is there saying that he judges beside the father he doesn't enact his own judgment but rather the judgment of the father then he says this in your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true that is in the bible says so here's the first testimony i am one who bears witness about myself And the Father who sent me bears witness about me. So the two witnesses to the Son is God and God. It's the Father and the Son. The only ones qualified in the final estimation to tell us who God is, is God. The only one in the final estimation who is qualified to reveal the Father is the Son, and to reveal the Son is the Father. There can be no other witnesses. What other witness could tell us as much as them? Why can we trust the Son? Because the Son is from the Father. And Jesus says, They said to him, therefore, where is your Father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. To know one is to know the other. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. No one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So how can we trust Jesus? Well, we take him at his word. We believe that the word he has spoken is true because he is true. We believe that the word he has spoken is true because he is the way, the truth, and the life. We believe that the word he has spoken is true is because the father sent him to say those words. And the question is, why don't they believe him? Why don't they have faith? Why can't they trust him? Why can't they take him at his word? Explains it this way in verse 21. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So Jesus identifies this to be true. He says, you will look me look for me but you can't find me because where I'm going aka up to the father ascending to the right hand of the father as the son of man you cannot come with me because you will die in your sin so their sin keeps them from seeing Jesus okay their sin keeps them from seeing Jesus why can't they trust him why can't they take him at his word well their sin keeps them from seeing Jesus So the Jews said, will he kill himself, still not understanding, since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. He said to them, you are from below, aka the earth, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Jesus is drawing a contrast. He's drawing a contrast between himself and the world. He's drawing a contrast between himself and, and them on this earth, that there are those who are below and that he is above. He said, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Here's the first paradox, seeming paradox. Why can't some believe in Jesus? Because of their sin. Well, what can rescue somebody from their sin? Believing in Jesus. So why can't some see Jesus? Why can't they see Him for who He is? Why can't they recognize that the light of the world is shining right in front of their face? Because of their sin. Well, how can they get beyond their sin? Well, by believing in Jesus. It's a seeming paradox. It seems that there's no way to escape. Because on the one hand, their sin keeps them from seeing Christ. And on the other, seeing Christ is the only way to escape from their sin. It's the only way, the only way to not walk in darkness is to walk in the light. The only way to see the light of the world is to open up your eyes. But if your sin is a scale over your eyes, how can that happen? This is what the Apostle Paul means when he talks in Ephesians. This is what we call the noetic effects of the fall, the noetic effects of the fall, the N-O-E-T-I-C, the noetic, and noetic is one of the Greek words for mind or thinking, and it's the idea that the fall has infected even our ability to see Christ. It's it's infected even our ability to comprehend that he's right there, right in front of us, that it's corrupted our ability to, to see Jesus for who he is. And so, because of the fall, you and I—we we each twist the evidence and we turn our gaze, so we don't have to behold His glory face on. This is why they ask Him, "Who are you?" And Jesus said to them, and you—you you can sense the frustration in His voice. Just what I've been telling you from the beginning, since John one one until now, He's been saying, "I am the light of the world." The light which shines in the darkness. And you can almost sense there's this sense of frustration. He says, I have much to say about you and much to judge. But he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I've heard from him. He says, I'm I'm coming, and I'm speaking, and yet I know that you don't understand. It's very much like Isaiah and Isaiah 6, where, where God commissions Isaiah to speak to a people who will not hear. And to speak to a people in such a way that actually hardens their heart. This is why it says in verse 27, they did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So the, the first paradox, what, what, keeps, what keeps people from believing in Jesus is sin. But the only way to be, escape from someone's sin, to, to break through those scales, is to believe in Jesus. Jesus. The question is, how then can we see Jesus? If the only way that you and I can see Him is cut off, blocked off by our own sin, how can we really see Him? How can we behold Him? How can we receive Him? The very mechanism for doing so is corrupted and twisted and broken by the fall. Jesus answers this way, in verse 28. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, that lifted up is not a phrase that connotes praise and admiration. When he, when he says, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, he's talking about the cross. Then you will know that I am, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak as the Father taught me. She says, when you put me on the cross, then you'll know. When you see me up there on Golgotha, forsaken by the world, then you'll know that the Father is with me. Then you'll see. Then the scales will fall off your eyes. And here's the second seeming paradox. The sin of the world, aka the sin of the Pharisees, and the sin of you and the sin of me, put Jesus on the cross. And it's on the cross that Jesus breaks the power of sin. Let me say that again. The sin of the world the sin of you, the sin of me put jesus on the cross but it's on the cross that jesus breaks the power of sin it's on jesus it's on the cross that jesus snaps those chains it's with the blood that jesus washes clean our eyes it's through that death that you and i are given life It's through that dark and gloomy day that the light of the world shines and the darkness has not overcome it. How can you and I believe when our sin holds us back from seeing? Because on the cross, Jesus broke the power of sin. The question is well, how does he do that? How does Jesus break the power of sin on the cross? How how is it that Jesus on the cross, when he dies on the cross, actually wins against sin, actually conquers? Because it's on the cross that Jesus establishes the new covenant. You see, all of us, because we are sinners, because we've broken God's law, Scripture tells us we're under a curse. And scripture tells us that when Jesus dies on the cross, he takes our curse upon himself. The book of Galatians actually says he redeemed us from the curse by becoming the curse. That he becomes the curse for us. He takes our punishment. He takes our sin upon himself. He bears our sin. Second Corinthians says that he became sin who knew no sin. That he takes the curse for us, breaking the covenant of God. That he establishes a new covenant. The same covenant that had been promised in the Old Testament, that we saw promised earlier, Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 60. It's the same covenant that we see uh, Jeremiah say this. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the lord for i will forgive their iniquity and i will remember their sin no more it's on the cross that jesus establishes the new covenant he allows the holy spirit to come to to come to us And that spirit gives us life. He regenerates us. He he, he gives us the promises of God. He unites us to Christ. He grafts us into the vine. He baptizes us into the spirit. He baptizes us into Christ. He makes us partakers of the holy nature. Do you understand that it's on the cross that Jesus broke the power of the sin that put him there in the first place? It's on the cross that Jesus allows living water to come to us as we saw last week. Where it says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his water will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified, a.k.a. crucified. How is it that Jesus breaks the power of sin on the cross? How is it that he he dissolves and he eradicates the noetic effects of the fall? He does it by dying on the cross and establishing the new covenant by which you and I can approach God. Christians, this passage is built on these two seeming paradoxes. On the one hand, our sin keeps us from believing in Jesus, but believing in Jesus is the only way to escape from our sin. And on the other... Our sin puts Jesus on the cross, and it's on the cross that Jesus breaks the power of sin. You see that this whole passage is looking forward to that point in the Gospel of John. This whole passage is looking forward to that point when Jesus will be lifted up, when Jesus will be glorified. This is why we see again and again throughout the Gospel of John and in this passage, his hour has not yet come. That we're looking forward to that day in the, as we're reading through the Gospel of John when he does die for our sins. When he does establish the new covenant. And as Christians, you and I gather every single week and we come before the word in the morning and we receive the benefit of that new covenant that was accomplished once for all for the forgiveness of sins. Christians, the benefit of the new covenant in this passage is not only that we receive the Spirit, but that we also receive the Father. You see, in, in verse 29, when he says, he has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. The promise for those who are in the new covenant, as John will later say, is that his father becomes our father, that we become adopted into his family. This is why Jesus says when he is, um, after he's been resurrected in John 20, he says, I'm ascending, son of man language, I'm ascending to my father and your father to my God and to your God. I can see Jesus. I can see Christ because my sin put him on the cross. Because the the sin that I had, which worked death in me, the Father used to bring life. Christians, you and I can see Jesus because he... In dying for our sins, he broke the power of our sins. You and I can see Christ because our sins put him there. And all of that is within the sovereign plan of the Lord. All of that is God's orchestrating redemption to come about so that you and I could be brought into the fold. So that you and I who are far might be brought near. So that you and I who are dead might be made alive so that you and I who are in darkness might see the light. So as we turn to apply this passage, let me start off by saying this. Number one, don't die in your sins. Don't die in your sins. Don't let your sins keep you from seeing Jesus. I know it seems powerful. I know the power of sin is is deep, but the grace of God goes deeper still. Don't die in your sins. Don't let your sins keep you from seeing Christ. Don't come up with an arbitrary reason for why you're not going to believe in Jesus, but receive his witness about himself. Don't let your sin keep you from Jesus. I love the the great theologian that Avett Brothers I have this song, great song, great band, great album. It's called "Ill with Want." I say I am sick with wanting, and it's evil and it's daunting. How I let everything I cherish lay to waste. I am lost in greed this time. It's definitely me. I point fingers, but there's no one there to blame. I am sick of wanting, and it's evil how it's got me. And every day is worse than the one before. The more I have, the more I think I'm almost where I need to be. If only I could get a little more. Don't let that sickness take you to the grave. Don't let that illness keep you from Jesus. Don't die in your sins. Number two, God wants you to know Him. God wants you to know Him. This passage tells us, at the very least, this passage tells us that at the very least that God overcomes the very thing that keeps us from God to bring us to himself. God is not a God who's distant, who doesn't want you to know him. God is not a, a deistic God who starts the world spinning and walks away. God is not a God who is waiting for you to figure it out. He knows you won't. God is a God who wants you to know him. Who wants to be known? Who wants to be loved? Who wants to bring glory? Who wants to be for your good? God is a God who wants you to know him. Number two, or number three, God wants you to know him in his son. See, that's a little bit different. God wants you to know Him in His Son. It's not just that God wants you to know Him, but He wants you to know Him through His Son. If you and I try to imagine finding this God by as if He's at the top of the mountain, we can just each take our own little path up the mountain. We will never find Him, because Jesus Himself says that He is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the only way that you and I can know the Father. He's the only one who reveals the Father to us. He's the only one who makes the Father known. He's the only way by which you and I can believe in the Father. God wants you to know him in his Son. Number four, God wants you to know him in his Son crucified. Let me say that again. God wants you to know him in his Son crucified. When you and I think about knowing God, we often think about the, the glory and the splendor and the majesty of the throne room. And well, we should. We think about the streets of gold and the pearly gates. We, we think about that, that day when we will see him face to face and know him even as we are known. And yet standing in the midst of the throne room is the lamb who has been slain from before the foundation of the world. What this passage tells us is there is no way to know the father except through the son who died on the cross for our sins. There is no way to come to God but but, but through his broken body. There is no way to come to the Father if he has not died on the cross for our sins. It's not only that God wants you to know him through the person of his son, he absolutely does. But it's that he wants you to know him through the person of his son crucified for you and on that broken tree. God wants you to know him through his son crucified. Number five. If you would have the light of the world, if you would have the light of the world, you must have all of him. We do not get to pick if we would rather have the son of the father or the son of man. We do not get to pick if we would rather have his cross or his empty grave. We do not get to pick those things that stick out to Jesus about, us, about him that we really like and leave behind those things that would press on us in uncomfortable ways. If you and I would have Jesus, we must have all of him. His empty grave and his cross. His Saving us and serving us, and his ruling over us. You cannot have him on the cross and not have him in heaven. If you want Jesus, you cannot come to him with who you think he should be. You must come to him for who he says that he is. And only there will you find life and light. Number six. If you will, would have the light of life, if you would have the light of the world, it means that you must keep walking in the light. You must keep walking in the light. That Jesus is not a toll person on a highway. He's not just waiting for you to get in and then waiting for you to go past him so that you can do something else and he'll take in the next person. If you and I would have the light of the world, it means that we must continue to walk with him. It it means that in the words of what we'll see next week, that we must continue to abide in him. That we must continue to dwell in him and find life in him and produce fruit by him. If you and I would have the light of the world, it means that we must continue to walk in the light. That we would continue to shun the darkness we continue to confess our sins towards one another and find forgiveness and continue to grow as Christians. That we continue to find him in his word and be disciplined in his grace. That we would continually devote ourselves to the gathering of the saints. Christians, if you and I would have the light of the world, it means that we must walk in him continually. Number seven, if you and I would have the sun, then we must also Receive the Father. Which means this. When Jesus says, He has not left me alone. If you have the Son, the same is true for you. If you have the Son, you have the Father. If you walk in his light, you have the Father. If you have the Son, then you have the Father, which means that we also must do what is pleasing to him. We also must continue to walk in his ways and continue to find in him our life and light. And finally, number eight, I think, seven, eight, whatever. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it if you're here this morning and you feel the gloom and the darkness closing in you feel distant from the lord and it feels dimmer than he once was to you or maybe you're in a situation where you feel like the walls are closing in on you and you feel like you feel like it's It's hard to make sense and hard to even see the one or two steps ahead of you, let alone the next day or the next week or the next month or the next year. Know this darkness has not overcome this light. This light will never, ever be squelched out. This light will never, ever be collapsed. This light will never, ever go out. But from age to age will burn brighter and brighter, and you and I will sit and bask in his glory from now until eternity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you give us the sun. That you give us the sun to light our way. Father, we thank you that he gives us the way of life. That he overcomes our sins and he points us in the way forward. Pray for all those who are here, that if they've not yet drawn near to the light, if they have not yet come into its warmth, They've not yet come out of the cold. That you give them the boldness and the courage to do that even today. And that from age to age, they would never cease to sing his praise for our good and for your glory. Amen.